Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, we can, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about uh, media and virtual production. Second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on, and the remotes are back. Uh, so they're going, to be, uh, they're going to be showing us a new song, releasing a new song, talking about it. So, uh, so stay tuned for that uh, in the second hour. Let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Lois, what do we have? I saw Alex show his new Stream Deck device on MacBreak. I wonder if we could use those knobs as encoder wheels for ETC's Nomad for controlling moving lights. If so, dream come true. Oh, that's by Tlaloc from New Mexico. And uh, yeah, so the um, I, I think you might be able to. I mean, I think that I, it'll be curious to see what you think of them, Tlaloc, because it's, it, is a, um, it, it is the resolution of them is... Uh, you know, it's not as high as some of the stuff that I've had in the past. Um, it's got kind of like little indents that you're kind of working around there. But it very, very well could. And uh, it'll be really interesting to see how that turns out. Go ahead, Mitchell. Not seen too much yet on Companion for use with it. Uh, but that would be interesting to see what the story is. It's brand new. So, you know, with Companion, we expect something to be released next year. Probably next, uh, the end of next year, we'll have something working for this, but hopefully something in beta a little bit faster than that. So, um, but uh, I, I, what I got first for it, just to test it, was I, I went to, I think, Sideshow Effects, and uh, I got all of the sheets uh, or all the profiles for Resolve. So I was able to just load those all in. I'm waiting for, you know, that's the only one that I saw that they had made so far. Um, but I'm looking, I'm waiting to see if we see, um, uh, ones for Final Cut and Logic and other things like that as well. So, so it'll be really interesting. The knobs make a big difference, and it has a scribble, a scribble, you know, bar that you can, you know, move. You can go between pages just by swiping. Um, but it also does things like delivers RGB Parade <laughs> to the little bar. It's really cool. So, um, it's it's it, it's a lot bigger than you when you look at it on the web. You think you your idea of how big it is is based on the button size. The button size is about. 30% bigger than the old button size, and they're more a little bit more spaced out. So it's a, it's a much bigger unit than you'd expect um, for that to be, you know, there. Next question. Joaquin Matus from Imperial Valley, California in the USA, looking for a quality USB-C cable to replace the one that came with my Mix Pre 6. Any suggestions? Go ahead, Mitchell. Love going to OWC. Uh, they have uh, just about everything. And, you know, they're not all made the same. So if you go shopping on Amazon, be careful you may not get what you want, but uh, like Alex, I love braided cables. <laughs> it's all about the braided cable. Go ahead, uh, Leland. That was pretty much my answer as well. I did buy some of those braided cables off of Amazon by Akoida, which I've had since 2019, and they still work fantastic. So just my recommendation on you. Yeah, there there are some. Um, I'm trying to find. The, I was trying to very quickly find the ones that I've been using. Um, there's some pretty high quality ones that you can get. They're expensive. It just if you really want something that's going to pass real bandwidth between it, you know, it's not going to be ten dollar cables. Go ahead, David. This is just a question. I know we all love the braided cables. Does braiding affect the quality of the cable itself? No, just just the it's just the feel. Okay. Thank <laughs> it you. Doesn't affect it at all. It it so there's a couple things about it is is it does pull through things a little bit easier. So if something's braided and you're and you want to pull uh, it, it through, rubber cables will stick to each other a little bit more. They'll knot a little bit more. 
um, and and get kind of tangled up. So the braided cable has like I have the, my headphone one that goes to these headphones is metal braided, and it will you know it just slides around everything much much easier than than so there's a little bit of a convenience to it, but it definitely does not affect the signal flow of the of the cable. But for a long time, now everybody does it, especially now that I talk about it. For a long time, I just knew I was the only one on a production that had braided cables. So if I saw braided cable somewhere, I knew it was probably, if I had any question, it was probably mine. Go ahead, Courtney. And be careful what you want to use them for. I, I ordered a couple of them. These are both braided cables. They look very nice. Uh, this one over here does not pass video. This one does. So make sure you get ones that are rated for, um, that carry display port or uh video on them. They're USB-C to USB-C. Of course, it can carry DisplayPort video, but it doesn't have to. And so it depends uh, on the uh, specs and the number of wires inside those lovely braids. So make sure you get the ones that work for what you need them for. Yeah, that has been such a, you know, one of the biggest problems with USB-C in general was that the format itself was too opened. And so it's not clear what every cable is. And that's the problem. Yeah, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, some of those are optimized for charging. So yeah, that's one. Yeah, so try not to get those. And uh, if you're if you're buying them, you should look at what the throughput speed is. It should be published. If it's not published, then it's probably a power cable. Once I have them at home, I use Blackmagic's disk speed, and I just plug a drive in that I know how fast it is, and I and I just run disk speed on it, and then I know how fast the cable is. Um, and then I mark the cables that are powered as red. I put little red electrical tape on, on, on the middle of them just so that I know that that's not a, a cable that I should use for transfer. Uh, next question. Paul Walhus from Austin, Texas says, can David Paskin talk about the ins and outs of Ecamm's limited 40% off lifetime deal and the costs and benefits of Ecamm and how it compares to other similar tools? Uh, go ahead, David. Uh, it's a huge question. Uh, the first thing I'll say is that yesterday there was a discussion about their what what was called on the show their launch and how, the production quality of it. I just want to remind everyone: all they did was launch a, an updated beta. This was not like a huge new um, launch, and this is a very scrappy company. There are two guys who do all of this um, coding and developing, and so if you're expecting big production from them, you're you're looking to the wrong company, I, I would argue. Um, as far as the deal, it there is a Black Friday deal. It um, starts on Friday, uh, goes through Monday. These are the regular prices here, standard 16 a month uh, for a total of 192, Pro is 32 a month for a total of 384. The promotion is 40% off. Uh, but here's the great part about it. It's 40% off the lifetime of your uh, uh, of your purchase. So this is a yearly um, subscription. You get, so I, whatever 40% off of 384 is, because you're going to definitely want the Pro, that's an amazing deal for the lifetime of your subscription. Um, you know, as far as how good is this compared to other tools, all I can tell you is I've been using it literally every single day for the past three years. I've almost never had a problem with it. It's solid. It gets done what I need it to get done. It's a really great product. And I encourage you to join us on Tuesdays for the Ecamm Lab. Yeah, and, and I do get that there are they're two people. It's the one, the, the hard part really was that, that the only thing we worry about sync <laughs> that's the, the, you know like that's the so the, you just you know like the, like the whole show should be about like all the testing and everything else should wrap around the one thing we can't ever have happen it's just that what everybody worries about with software i mean not everyone but people like me 
when we worry about something, it's audio sync, you know, and so that's the, you know, and I would just have a computer that was running 20% capacity, you know, to do it, to, you know, to do a show to make sure that, you know, and test it for a long time. Um, you know, that's the problem with it. Um, I think that, I think Ecamm, by the way, is a great piece of software. I think that it's, it's a really, the cost value is really high and I know a lot of people that are using it. So I get it. I just, I just, it was unfortunate that that was the, the problem, <laughs> you know, go ahead, David. Oh, it definitely was unfortunate. They do this uh, every month. They do an Ask Ken and Glenn, the, the two developers. And it's interesting. We call it a show here. Um, they absolutely don't call it a show. For them, it's it's right. it's an AMA sort of, you know, hangout. So. Right, right, right. That yeah. makes sense. Uh, next question. Courtney Gooden from Hollywood, California says, has anyone tried the new Lilliput competitor for the ATEM switcher? It has RCA stereo inputs and he has a link. Go ahead, John. I think Courtney's going to make a correction on this, aren't you, Courtney? You go ahead, Courtney. Uh, yeah, it's the HVSO401. SO H. Uh, the link is correct. This is what it looks like here. It's, when I went to that link, it said it was discontinued. Really? Um, I clicked on the link. It's right there from their web page. Um, maybe I just didn't capture the link correctly. But uh, as you can see from the back here, it has RCA inputs. It has two Ethernet inputs. It has three um, HDMI inputs and one DisplayPort input. Uh, it has a multi-view out. And uh, luckily, it has you know RCA unbalanced but separate stereo inputs. Uh, and uh, it also has tally light outputs, which is what that uh, uh, nine pin is over there on the left. So uh, it has a lot of the things people were asking for on the ATEM, but it's priced uh, a little bit more expensive now that they've dropped the price of the ATEM Mini Pro to uh, $300. This is five and a half hundred dollars. Right, go, go ahead, Mitchell. I'm sorry, but as soon, as soon as I see RCA connectors on any semi-pro gear, I run screaming in the opposite direction. Of course, we, that's not like they're worse than an eighth-inch jack. Well, better than an eighth-inch jack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Well, that's what I was going to say. I mean, with an eighth-inch jack, depending on how it's wired, you could conceivably get balanced audio out of that. You just have to do tip-ring sleeve on it. With RCA connectors, there are only two signal channels, so you will never get balanced audio out of that. Uh so I always look, I'm, I'm hoping, as Alex has mentioned before, that they move to some honest balance connector so that the ATEM gets audio done right. But I don't think they've done it on either of these yet. Yeah, it definitely, uh, I'm looking at it on Amazon. It's on Amazon now, right now for $400, so a little bit less, so closer to the to the ATEM. I think that the, the problem would, for me, would be really the software, you know, the, the software interaction, like, what does that look like? If it's just a hardware piece, I'd be probably, it'd be probably pretty hard to get me to move. Uh, go ahead, Guy. Sorry, it looks like the one that uh, Courtney, what's going on? Okay. It looks like the one that Courtney put up is um, uh, discontinued, but they they have a newer model by AV Matrix. It's, it's not Lily put the it's the company, and they took off the RCAs. Um, when you look at BNH's site, they're temporarily on back order, so it's like what what's going on with this with this product. And uh, when you compare it to an ATEM, it really just doesn't hold a candle as to what the ATEM does for, with the ISO at the same price point now with the lower price with the ISOs. And then uh, you know Roland would be the only other competitor that I would think that's in this range that's worth worth examining. I mean, if somebody has something else, uh, I'd love to take a look at it, but I think Blackmagic and Roland just well, dominate. 
oddly enough, as these things come out, Black Magic dropped the price of this. I mean, it, it's brutal, like to, to drop the price to the of what they have there to that to what where it's at now. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it, uh, and I was looking. You know, one thing that this these two have this one and the new new version, which I did see yesterday. I didn't know it was related or from the same company was confusing because it's published under another, it's sold under another manufacturer name, is it has a separate buttons for preview and program, which is kind of interesting that, uh, and the other one, the new one that uh, Guy was talking about has an actual mechanical T-bar on it. Uh, so that's kind of handy to have. And it they both have software uh, controls for them. Um, I don't know whether you can use them remotely or not, but that's, they do come, both come with a software interface for them. Yeah, I think that the the hardest part for any of these is is dealing with the ecosystem. You know, like it's that that's the that's what Black Magic has going for it is that it built this ecosystem where well, this does it work with my Hyperdex? Does it work with my camera? So if you're doing a switch switch by itself, and if you're doing like AV control, it might it might pan out. But when you're thinking about your entire process, it's really hard to like I could. It's very hard for me to think about how my home studio would be anything other than Blackmagic, both camera and switcher, because I can shade it, I can refocus it, I can do all the other things that I want to do. Um, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Todd, were you going to say something? Did I miss you there? I know I, it's you. I actually took my hand down because I didn't think it was that important. But uh, the two things I was going to say was, can you not get audio straight through HDMI into this device, thereby circumventing the RCAs was the first thing. And then also, um, is Yolobox not a contender at all for something like this? I don't know. I, I yeah, yellow, yellow box is a contender, and it does take uh, audio over HDMI inputs on the three yeah. HDMI inputs as well. Just the analog audio input is right. RCA's, and and it has two mic inputs that are are three point five inch mini plug, mini jack, just like and, the ATEM, right? Yeah, and the RCA. So. Right. Yeah. So it, it it it. I think that again, if you're not in the ecosystem, I think it might be an easier uh, if you're not using the rest of it. But I I. I've used Lilliput for a long time. I'd I'd be really surprised if their software was running at the level that the that the ATEM software is running. Um, also, the number of users is probably a million people less than than you know. And so it's just it's just hard because there's there's a whole again a larger ecosystem that they have to compete with. So, I mean, I think that I'd love to test one and play with it. Um, even just looking at the form the, the form vector, I was like, Meh, I don't know if I'd, you know, um, I don't I don't know how, how quickly I'd jump on it. I'd test it. It has I'd, less little buttons on it. I know, there's that. <laughs> you know, my big thing is, is that I'd be super excited about an ATEM, the, all the buttons here, if I could reprogram them. Like it would be the ultimate, you know, like, uh, you know, if I, if all I could do is, because I'm, I use like eight of them out of, you know, a hundred. And if I just could just, you know, if the because right now what happens is is the hardware talks to the switcher, or the hardware the, the switcher is internal and you have to ping it to get the information. But if I if if all it did was just send out a signal, this button is down. That's all. It, all they have to do is just be able to ping that this button got pushed. Um, if if we had that, it would be transformational, like for production, you know, and it probably in, in deep in, deep digly deep. Uh, dig deeply into the stream deck because now I have one device that's cutting the show and I have buttons that I can push into it. So, anyway. Well, doesn't the Extreme have four macro buttons on it that you can program? I don't want macro buttons. I want I want to be able to say, I want to be able to push a button and have it act like a stream deck. Like it goes out to companion or goes out to something else. Like it just, or tells Isadora that it's being hit. So now I can control lots of things on it. This would be a very powerful set of buttons if they... Um, 
if they could tell me that they were being pressed. That's all, like literally, it's like one little thing, like just have a protocol that, that I can listen to it and it's just gonna tell me that this button got pushed and, and then I'll do all the rest. <laughs> like it just, it would make life a lot easier. For, for instance, I often wanna autofocus my camera or I wanna open up my aperture or do whatever. I wanna be able to design that in the switcher so that I can just push, push a button and it makes my camera brighter or darker or whatever, you know, so anyway. Uh, next question. Okay, Mark Giuliani in Washington, D.C. says, My extended family is looking for a place to archive and share old photos and videos. We looked at Google Photos, but it doesn't seem to allow for folders and subfolders. Does the panel have other suggestions? Javier. Oh, my first answer would be Apple Photos. I use it a lot and I really like the, you can do smart folders and real folders and you can uh, share things. But that's everything with Apple. If you're outside of the ecosystem, it doesn't work that well. So my second recommendation with Dropbox. I'm a heavy Dropbox user for a long time and they added a lot of things for photos. So you can put your photos and videos and it also, you can say, send links with expiration dates or like only to certain folders. And the one that has like the Dropbox account with everything, even if in different folders if you go to your website the Dropbox website in your account there's a photos place where it's sorted uh, by a year and everything so even if you keep it in different places it auto sorts it so Dropbox would be a, a good choice uh, go ahead uh, Mitchell I have a kitchen drawer for that <laughs> uh, Leland uh, if your family has a Prime account, you can get all the free photo storage you need on Amazon Prime. So they will give you also five gig of video storage. It includes group sharing so that you can share those photos and images with your family and friends. Uh, that's unlimited store, or I'm sorry, 100 gig of storage for 199 a month if you're outside of that ecosystem. Um, but other than that, you can do all kinds of revisions in the system itself. So take a look. Go ahead, David. I just want to remind everyone, I think people forget sometimes that Google fundamentally is a search engine. And so the reason they don't have folders or subfolders, although they have albums, is because you can search. So yesterday was my my wedding anniversary. If I want to look for pictures of weddings, I'm just going to type in the word wedding and it's going to bring them all up. Um, so just a reminder, use, um, use the search function. Go ahead, Courtney. And if you have Google... Photos, you have Google Drive, which where you can organize things into folders and give permission to people and have them expire and uh, give them links, send them links to that. So you can put your photos in a folder in Google Drive as well. Next question. Mark Giuliani from Washington, D.C. What are some good stripping crimping tools for making 12G SDI cable? I go ahead, Todd. I, I actually defer to Jeff because I was I was hoping I was following Jeff because Jeff recommended some stuff to me which I bought and I use and I would never go back. So go ahead, Jeff. Go ahead, Jeff. So first of all, choose which uh, connectors you're going to use and then you need to get a crimping die tool that and get ready to cry once. But definitely this is a buy once, cry once. Uh, so the Neutrik tool, you say, oh, $175, that's not that cry, but you need to add to it the proper die that fits into that tool, which is $250 uh, to add to that. And each die is specific for a particular connector. Yeah, and then I'm gonna I'm, I'll, I'll make you cry just a little bit more. Um, is that uh, if you're gonna do if you're gonna do a handful of these, you can get a hand. A uh, wire stripper that's going to just roll around it. And if you're going to do 10 of them, then that's what you use. If you're going to do 100 of them or 200 of them, you're going to want to go to coastaltools.com. 
It's a uh, it's a motorized uh, wire stripper, and once you get it once you get it calibrated, you push the cable in, you push the button, and it cuts all three all all three depths. You pull it back out again, and you and you and you pull the strip. You know, you strip out the little the bit the ends, and it is uh, it's awesome. I have to admit, the worst part is is that I don't really have a lot of experience with doing it by hand because I learned how to do SDI from that coastal tool, which means that when someone handed me a a manual, you know, um, cutter, I was like, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> like, like, like this, this is, this is, uh, you know, just downright caveman, you know? So, so the, um, uh, and I literally, I remember I was at a pretty big company and, and, and we were, we were working on an event and someone started using the hand one. I was like, I got another thing in the other, in the other room. And you know, I felt like a drug dealer. I set it down in front of them and they did like 40 cables and they came back and they're like, where do I buy this? You know, like, you know, so, and that was someone who had been doing SDI cables for 10 years, you know? And so it is, uh, it, again, if you're gonna do a handful of them, you can buy it. You you can buy the um, you can buy something. You can do it by hand. But if you're if this is really going to be something you're doing all the time, then I would get the motorized version. Go ahead, Todd. At least with the stripping tool uh, that I got, it has to be calibrated on its own anyway, and that has been the bane of my existence. I've never gotten a really great strip out of the whole thing. So oh, it's yeah. like I went to look at yours, Alex. I forget how much it is. It was like it was like a thousand dollars or more. It's like, it? I think it's like seven hundred. Well, it depends. You can get the handheld one. The the one that sits on your desk, I think, is over a thousand dollars. The one that you can hold, you know, it's handheld. I think is seven hundred fifty dollars or something like that. And I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I made the choice away from that and. Now I'm wondering, but yeah, five five hundred bucks for tools sounds seems like a lot, but that Neutrik crimper and that die has been absolutely perfect for us. Well, and too. and the other thing is, is that it it is uh, it it just pays for itself over and over and over again. The cost of SDI cables when you buy them pre uh, terminated is just so expensive. You, you know, so the the thing that I have is I just have roll a roll or a couple of rolls of thousand a thousand feet of of cable you know that cost me a buck 50 a foot or a buck 20 a foot and now i'm you know now i have all of that that cable and i just pull it out to the length that i need it too so I, especially when we're building stuff you can pull it out to the length you need it and uh, and then just make it it's so much it's like if you're gonna That's build 200. exactly what we did for it but I, I mean because of jeff so uh so we're really thankful we did it that that way exactly that way with the big spool yeah, because if you're going to do 200 cables, it does not. As soon as you go over about 50 cables that you need, it's probably not. Doesn't make sense to buy them. <laughs> Next question. Uh, Kyle Hammond from Chicago, Illinois, says I need to send a command via QLab to change between multiple Insta 360 and OBS bot cameras. How would you do it? Uh, go ahead, uh, Victor. Uh, good morning. Um, first of all, I wouldn't recommend doing it. Can you do it? Yes. But using um, QLab only, you're not going to have a preview at all. So you're cutting to live. You know. So what I really would recommend is if you can get those sources plugged into a $300 ATEM. So now you've got full control, you've got preview, and then you use something like ATEM OSC to OSC commands to change cameras and cut between your cameras using that, which is super easy. So if I were gonna do it, I'd do it that way because of not having preview available, you're cutting blind and I would not recommend it. Next question. 
Nathan Cashin from Oregon City says, yesterday's discussion of dream gear made me realize that I don't fully understand how everybody affords the gear they already have. I've heard Alex mentioned amortization or billing back clients for items. How does it all work? Uh, go ahead, Leland. Well, there's several ways to do that, depending on what your, your workflow was going to be entailing. But uh, I started grassroots. I didn't have a budget. And I started with software for audio components like voice meter was one. I didn't have to pay hundreds of dollars for a mixer. I started with used microphones. I started with used equipment. And as I did projects, I built onto that by reinvesting in my business. If I was making a profit, I had to turn that money back in. Because if you don't, you're never going to be able to increase the components within your system. So always make sure you're reinvesting in your business with the money that you earn on your projects. Right, go ahead, Bill. And so you often get into these topics when you start dealing with taxes and things like that. An amortization schedule is basically paying back things over time. So uh, you do that with your home mortgage and things like that. Um, in terms of billing back to clients, that's usually something you need for a particular project. And even though you're going to pay a fixed amount and buy it, you're only you're going to charge the client back for that. So if there's a $200 item that I can't live without to do this job for this client, and I'm not sure any of my other clients are going to use it, it's perfectly fair to charge the client that $200 for that object to get their project done. Then you essentially own it, but um, it, it's usually in the class of things that you don't use often. So there's no sense in you buying it other than the client paying for it. You got it, Mitchell. We all love to get gear, and when we see it, we want to buy it right away. I really want that Stream Deck Plus, but can't quite justify it right now. Most things you can do well if you decide that you're not going to buy that new software package or equipment unless you have a job that you can bill it against, mm -hmm. like we've been saying all along. So try to resist that temptation mm -hmm. and not buy until you have a reason or way to pay it back. Good, Todd. I was just going to add that, uh, I mean, I, I come from the arts world, so we're always asking for things. So in addition to the idea that you buy things, we, I, I made myself into a, into a business with my, with my partner. So then you can deduct all the things that you buy. And I'm constantly looking for people who are moving up, giving things away, buying and buying things inexpensively as they sort of come online around me in my environment. Yeah. I, I buy a lot of things. Um, and, and the reason that I buy them uh, a lot of times is so it, it's one thing to rent them and try to figure out how to use them on site when I, or the day before when I rented it. It's another thing to have them and play with them and use them and figure them out. And so um, I've always been a pretty big fan of owning a lot of stuff. I don't buy everything. There's definitely things that I rent because I know how they work. I, I know that lights are going to show up in a certain way and they're not very complicated and they're not usually, they don't usually have very compl complex computers or menus or anything else. Um, I also know that uh, microphones or something I can usually rent. Um, I can rent lenses because I, you know, generally know them. Um, and so those are things that I, you know, things like tripods I'll never rent because my taste in tripods is about $15,000 tripods is what I want to use in production. I don't want to pay for those and they cost like $150 a day to rent them. <laughs> so it's just, it doesn't like, it doesn't add up. A lot of it is thinking about that, that process. The the big thing is, is how do you pay for them? Now, a lot of the stuff I get, you watch me get, because I'm on a show called Mac Break, and I, I, I'm in constant, I'm constantly feeding the need to to uh, uh, recommend something. <laughs> so, so there's a, there's a there's a lot of like me just just buying things because I you know I recommended the Stream Deck yesterday, but I don't want to recommend it unless I bought it and, and and I'm actually using it. You know, I don't want to say, oh, I saw this on the web and I think it'd be great. And so there's kind of a need for that. 
the um so i have you know i i have and i have funding to do that you know um and the the when i had a company um, and still the company that i'm i work at now the big thing is is you look at the market rate of what they're what they're renting it at so if something's costing you know like a switcher might cost i might rent it out at 225 dollars a day like that's the going rate of of what the for a switcher i'm making this up so it's 225 dollars a day um, and then you have to calculate what we call three-day weeks because no one charges you for every day that you're using it. They charge you three days, three days out of every week. So, so that, so the most you can make out of that is about six seventy-five. Uh, if if that was the number, it would be six seventy-five a week. You know, for that. Now, if that switcher costs, let's say ten thousand dollars, then that then you you have to know how you're going to rent it enough times to pay it off. So you kind of have a. Now, once it's paid off, it starts making money for you because. Uh, and so it, a lot of it has to do with the volume of work that you're doing. So if you have a high volume of work that you're that you're putting out, then what happens is is that now that you once you pay off all that hardware, it starts generating revenue. And you know so, at, you know with Pixelcore, you know it was sometimes a third of the budget was was renting the gear, you know, and and so that was a big and a lot of times that was almost all profit. And I don't understand how anybody does production, to be honest with you, if they're renting everything, <laughs> because that was like this huge cushion that allowed us to just, and, and we, we said, oh, we want to throw a couple more cameras in. We want to, you know, just because I want them, you know, I want to have a better show. So I'm going to put another camera in. I'm going to put a couple extra switchers in. I'm going to have a backup to this and this and this. I'm going to have some extra lights. And because I owned it, I can just add value to it. And what that was, is that was a that was crushing for everyone else in my market <laughs> because I would just apply hardware to things, um, you know, ruthlessly, you know, because I, if I, if I wasn't busy, the client was going to get way more than and that was on the string. They wouldn't even know what they were looking at. They just, it was just a lot nicer. And it, it made it very hard for people to compete with us because we would put way more value into the, into the show um, because I had a 10,000 foot warehouse and 30 cameras and, you know, 20 switchers and on all of that had been paid for by renting it back. You know, like we, we had a budget that was basically, uh, I believe it was, if I remember correctly, about a third of the rental cost was something I was allowed to spend money on. So we would just keep buying, you know, it's just this constant, <laughs> you know, buying of things. Um, and it, it allowed us to, um, but you have to keep that, then you have to keep the volume up. That's the, that's the key is the volume has to pay for all of that. Go ahead, David. I just wanted to make a plug for the the other side of the pipeline that that uh, when you inevitably buy something that you then end up not using or not needing um, that, you know, to Todd's point, um, back in the spring when I got the Roadcaster Pro 2, I didn't need my Flow 8 anymore. And it, as it turns out, someone was on Facebook, uh, a, a radio uh, guy in Ukraine that I had connected with who was in need of a small mixer. And I was able to send that over to him and and those little, little things can really make a difference uh, for other people. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Kind of a follow-up question, uh, especially for Bill, but anyone else. So if you need that $200 item and you're going to use it just for that project, is that a discussion you have with the client ahead of time? Do you get approval for that? Or is that part of your bid? Or how do you handle that? Negotiation. It, it, it depends on the impact for me of them. If it's a $200 thing and I'm working on a $10,000 project, it never comes up because they don't want to get down into the granular detail of that. If it's a significant piece, then yes, you will have, we need this for there and I'm going to put it into the billing and they will agree to it. You just want to make sure the most important factor you have in business ever is trust. 
if the client ever starts to feel like you're managing to make more money on the back end of things and not telling them how you're doing that, you risk the trust relationship in that. And eventually you could lose the client over that. So uh, you don't have to note everything. It's understood that if it, there are incidentals and they're just going to be billed, but don't go farther than that. Yeah, I mean, we just ate a lot of this. I mean, to, to us, it, it was eating into our margin to do it. Like we weren't, like there was a, and sometimes it was still rentals, you know, but inside of that rental, because I had that room, I could do things that were, like we had one where we realized that we were in a, we were in the back of a room and our lens wasn't long enough. We needed a 50 to, we had a, a whatever, something to 300 and we needed a 50 to 1,000 to put in the back of the room. And I paid a producer to, uh, in Portland, to go to a, a rental house and jump on a plane and fly to Chicago <laughs> and, hand me, and just hand me the lens and get back on a plane and go home. That was all inside of that because I had this huge buffer that I had created. And again, the argument is, is that the, the, the client would go, well, if you already own all the gear, why are you charging us for it? And I'm like, look, if you're not going to pay me for it, I'm going to go rent it. <laughs> you're going to get lower quality stuff at the same price. Like, you know, I'm not charging you more than, than, than what, you know, and usually what I did is I just went under the rental price for everything. I would rent everything at a little bit less than you could get it. Uh, you could rent it at market rate. Um, go ahead, Lois. So when you were talking about figuring out how long is a $600 a week and it's a $10,000 thing. Do you have to take into account how long this item is going to be useful? Because I mean, after a few years, it's so old, it, it might not be wanted anymore. Well, when I was really, I don't buy as much gear as I used to. Um, but when I was buying gear, um, we were doing three to five events a week. So it was you know, like it would pay for itself in, you know, a month typically <laughs> like, you know, like, like everything paid for itself in a month. And so, and, and again, most of it was paid for by the rental, uh, the rental cost that we were renting all the other gear that was sitting there was paying for the new gear that we bought. So technically it was paid for that day. <laughs> you know, so, so, I mean, it was, it was into our margins. So it's, it's a, it's a funny, it's fuzzy logic, but, but the bottom line was, is that there was no, you know, and where we got ourselves in trouble is when I started borrowing money to buy bigger things because I was trying to move from one market to another. And that's how I ended up not having a company. <laughs> so, so it's like gambling, you know. And so when I was when I was super conservative and stuck, stayed inside of that little window, um, I was able to build up a lot without having to have any be leveraged. Um, when I started buying, you know, $100,000 encoders and, you know, $80,000 lenses, then I got caught. I got, I got myself uh in a bind. Um, go ahead, Bill. The other part of this, and I'll do it real quick. Uh, Lois brought up, there is another part of this called depreciation that is very important if you're actually running a business and particularly if you're working with accounting on, an accountant on this. And that's the difference between the purchase price and the residual value of something over time. So if you buy something for $4,000 and you expect it to last you four years, the IRS allows you to depreciate that capital expense over that amount of time. There will be a residual value at the end. And that difference can be very important. What you do not want to do is still be paying for a device after, for some reason, the market says this thing is useless. You paid a lot for it. They don't want it now. And you're still paying on something and depreciating something that has little or no value to you. This is why we try to find good, solid gear that has proved its worth, because paying on something that's worthless is a terrible feeling. And I would have never... We rented and rented and rented before Blackmagic started putting stuff out. Like the reason that we were able to do buy things is because Blackmagic was a lot less expensive. So we could buy, you know, I could buy 10 switchers instead of renting, you know, and, and so um, that was a, that's 
a big piece of why we were able to do it is suddenly the, the bottom fell out of the hardware that would do the kind of shows that we were trying to do. Um, next question. Tommy Chance from St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, St. Paul, yeah. It, is it possible to stack ATEMs for added inputs? And if so, how could you control them with the ATEM controllers and stream decks? I go ahead, Courtney. Uh, it is possible, and several YouTubers did it. However, controlling them with the software is the problematic part because um, the software can only connect to one at a time, and you can only run one instance of the software on a computer, unless you have a virtual computer on your computer where you could run a second instance of the software. And you just have to choose uh, one software to drive which uh which remote switcher? You'd be better off, though, uh, selling them and getting a, an extreme or something with more or, or a higher uh, input ATEM switcher up to the constellation uh, to handle all your multiple inputs. But if you've got them laying around, uh, you can do it, but you're going to have to get another little PC if you want two people to control or to control each one over the software. You got it, Mitchell. Um, I'm going to put a vote in for they run hot. I mean, I could make a grilled cheese sandwich off my one ATEM. Uh, if you stack them, you're going to be probably working uh, with uh, hamburgers and things like that. But yep. if they're the rack mounted, like the 2ME, uh, you could put a vent rack between them and deal with that problem there. Or you could use a matrix uh, with it and uh, multiply your inputs. Go ahead, Tom. So I'm going to put a different vote in. First of all, if you want to use Stream Deck, you can control two separate ATEMs at one time very easily. In fact, uh, David Joshua Ford, if you're not into programming your own Stream Deck, made a config file with all the ATEMs, all the major, uh, the mini, the extreme, so on in it. So you could have different pages. Also, if you don't have a Stream Deck, you can very, very quickly and easily just go to the connection and switch. Yeah, and and there's a lot of ways to automate it. Remember that this is an opened, um, you know, there's an, a not not completely open, but a fairly opened API uh, for these. So for basic switching systems, you could use things like Isadora. You could use things like Isadora talking through a variety of things to send commands to multiple switchers all at the same time. So really what you want to look at is a intra inter um, macro. You know, So if I'm going to push this button, if I want this output to come out of that switcher, then I'm going to push a button on a stream deck and it's going to tell all, it, you know, companion or whatever will tell all the, the decks what to do at the same time. Um, and so it, it would probably take a little bit of work there, but that's how I looked at it. I actually stacked four of them up and realized very quickly that I was going to have to build macros that would go between them all. I'm not, I didn't do that yet, but it, I, it you know, works in my head. <laughs> the only thing that I'm worried about with it is mostly that it would have to tell those switchers to do the same thing within a frame of each other, or you'd see a black or, or the wrong frame. And so so those are the things that you, or it has to switch one before the other, that type of thing. And so so I think that figuring that out would be the the trick, but definitely building macros that are talking to multiple switchers would not be that uh, not be that hard. It'd be a weekend or a week of, of going back and forth and, you know, probably some expletives as you work through that process. But, but it would, it would, it, that's how I would tie those together. I have a, I've been thinking about that architecture because I actually want to stack up like, um, seven, seven or eight extremes. <laughs> Cause I realized you almost did that. Didn't you? <laughs> I did. I'm just trying to get someone to send them to me. I, would, I, was, I was like, I'll wire them all together. <laughs> I, was, I had, well, I had the four wired yeah, up and I was like, if someone would just send me eight or oh, seven more extremes, we'll just stack them all up and wire them all in. So it would be a 56, like a 56 input, um, you know, eight ME <laughs> switch, switcher. And then you just have to, you, but, but the key is to abstract the complexity of the, 
the idea is to abstract the complexity of all those switchers into a, some kind of interface. Uh, next question. Uh, Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana writes, had an odd issue yesterday during a record. The presenter's slides were playing from my Ventura Mac Mini to a Magewell capture card and lost signal for a second. I also can't reproduce the error now. Any thoughts? Yeah, I'm going to guess that it... Just looking at it, it was playing... Slides were playing in the Ventura from... Number one is I wouldn't be using Ventura in a in production, live production. Like, like it's not, don't I would not use a Mac, a new Mac OS in live production until February of each year. So they're going to announce one in June, and they're going to release it sometime in the fall. The last time they're going to really do any major updates to it is Feb is January, because then the um, then they all start working on. Uh, WWC. <laughs> so, so, so anyway, so so the um, so so the thing is, is all the bugs get get sorted out um, between all, all the little bugs get generally all the bugs you're going to get sorted out are going to get sorted out by the end of January, and then after that you're um, you're you, you know it's going to be what it is, but it'll be stable. Um, things are going to be moving all the time, so I would not use a Ventura in. I'm testing Ventura on one computer. But I would not use it in live production right now. <laughs> so anyway, um, to go back, you know, and so because it's not just the Mac, it's the, all the other peripherals having to talk to Ventura. And Apple makes so many dramatic changes between uh, OSs. They're not trying to make it backwards compatible very much, <laughs> you know. And a lot of times they'll warn the manufacturers for years that, hey, we're going to get rid of, we're going to depreciate this this thing, we're going to depreciate that, and then they just do it. They're like, they're not, they're not like, hey, are you sure you're ready? They just change it. And so I think that that aggressive nature makes it not a good idea to um, to go down. I'm going to guess that it's something to do with Ventura and the Magewell, um, that Magewell's a little behind and it, it um, it's probably resetting um, some kind of clock, you know, is probably what it was doing there. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, reset the clock. Or if you're dealing with HDMI, the problem with HDMI is it has to renegotiate every time you plug it in. So if the cable's not quite in all the way or something gets a little bit loose, it'll drop out for a second renegotiate the EDIDs and, and it'll kill video while it does that. And then it'll come back on at whatever resolution they agree on. So that could have happened with a bad cable too. It could absolutely. But what usually when something drops out and comes right back in, that's a clocking issue either for the video or the audio. There's something going on there where it has to go, Oh, I don't know where I'm, I don't know where I am. <laughs> so let's, let's start this over again. By the way, I will say, I just, I think I mentioned this yesterday. Uh, I finally got into the, it took me a little while to get into the, uh, oh, uh, the really dig into the Blackbird 8x8 matrix and being able to copy EID, EDIDs from other monitors was the key to the operation. Like a lot of us were using converters before that and you don't have to do that. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael writes, when setting up the Mac mini nodes for the OH 2.0 system, how do you handle the request for an Apple ID during the initial setup process? Do you set them up without an Apple ID? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how we have those set up. So I'd, yeah, we'd have to, when we, when we have the guys back on, we'll talk through that. Next question. Paul Walhus from Austin, Texas. Wired... Omar El Galaga wrote a story called, It's Time to Make 3D TVs a Thing Again. Really? And then he has some links to see. I, I don't think that 3D TV is going to go anywhere, but it, it is, um, uh, I think that it, 
have a better chance of it going into into the you know MetaQuest. The you know the all the goggles are perfect for 3D. It, and I, I haven't read the article, so maybe that's what he's talking about. But it's but I, I TVs as a group viewing the technical challenges of that are pretty steep, and the the uptake was very low. And I doubt it'll happen anytime soon. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, Paul, you're my age or older, and uh, I, you might note that 3D has come in and out of popularity at least four times during our lifetime, and it's not likely. And it may come back again, but it'll go away again. Yeah, it it, it works perfectly in, in, um, in VR goggles. Like it is, it's what it was meant for. Like it just, all the stuff that we learned how to do with, you know, everything from in, in our, our understanding of interaxial distance and our understanding of convergence and our understanding of how to shoot it and understanding how to build it and everything else is all still applicable. All the things that we learned during the last 3D era, <laughs> the last, it's like an ice age, the, the last ice age. Um, the, all those skills are still useful for us to shoot content for it, but it is a, uh, but I would say that, um, that I don't, I don't see how a TV is going to work. You know, I think that it, it's also pretty good for a venue that is really built for it. So like when IMAX does 3D, they do a pretty good job of it if it's shot really in 3D. What doesn't work also is we built a bunch of content that wasn't shot in 3D and it's uh, it's, it's really hard to watch. Next question. Harshid in Daytona Beach, Florida writes, what is the history behind Black Lion interfaces? What types of setups do you find their products to be most used in? Uh, go ahead, Jeff. I remember Black Lion uh, as they began as a modification company. So you would take uh, inexpensive uh, sort of semi-pro audio interfaces. The big one that was first was the uh, Avid, well, they were Digidesign, then uh, 002 uh, audio interface, which was an eight-channel Pro Tools audio interface. And you would ship it to them and they would do mods on the analog ins and outs. So put better preamps and better converters in them and made things uh, sound much better. And they actually did uh, improved digital clocks for the converters. And uh, it looks like now Black Lion is working their way into building their own interfaces. But uh, they've kind of been a boutique boutique brand and uh, really high quality uh, audio, the analog stages, which is really important. Good, Leland. As an owner of a Black Magic Lion Revolution 2x2 for roughly two years now, I'm very impressed with the product line itself. And as Jeff mentioned, uh, that was really where they started back in Chicago in 2006. A small group of audio engineers decided they wanted to improve audio quality across the board and started to build mods for basically any piece of audio interface out there. Um, but they do have several in line now that they're building themselves, as he mentioned. It is a boutique setup, uh, but they're very, very customer service oriented. So it's definitely a high end quality line. Next question. Paul Walhus from Austin, Texas. Is Hive Society a viable alternative to Twitter and Mastodon? And there's a link to a story about it. Uh, yeah, for, for those wondering, uh, with Hive Social, um, it, it's the next, uh, it's another like um, iPhone app or, or phone-based system. So it's not a web system. It's just, it's all, it's all uh, on an app. Uh, so far, the reviews have been that it's pretty buggy. Um, and I found that uh, I... I go to every social network that starts and I, I, I basically plant my uh, flag by getting my name. <laughs> so I just immediately go in and grab my name. And, um, and uh, the, um, I, I played around with it a little bit. I think people think that they can make the Twitter feed better than Twitter. And I'm not sure they can. Like I don't like, and I don't know if they can do it for Twitter users anyway. 
Like I really like the text-based version and I really like it to be vertical and like creating a bunch of other things. I immediately found myself not wanting to use it. Like I just was like, oh, I don't want to do this. Like I tried for about an hour and tried to, you know, move around and I just found it to be, it's, it's a little thing like, uh, like with Flipboard, it was one article per page. And as soon as they put three articles per page, I stopped using it. <laughs> like it was a really funny thing. I think they, they thought the density would be better, but it was like there's a certain function uh, to it. And I came back to it when they went back, when they got rid of the, <laughs> when they got rid of that. Um, but it was, it's, it, I think we need to know that it, these interfaces are pretty sensitive and especially when people are using them a lot. Um, it's, an, it's an interesting problem. Um, next question. Douglas Carmichael writes, in an article about the recent Billie Eilish tour, it mentioned social media as a factor in audience response. With the rise of decentralized platforms like Mastodon, could you see curated affinity spaces as part of an artist's engagement mix? Yes. I don't think it'll be Mastodon, but I, I think that's a pretty good idea. <laughs> Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana writes, Affinity updated photo designer and publisher to version two recently. How is everyone finding the design changes? I have not gotten to the update yet. Um, so I, I, I don't, uh, does any, I don't know if anyone else is using it enough to, to look at it. I just haven't had time to, to, um, to update to version two, but I, I, it looks, uh, I mean, I, I really like affinity. That's what I use for photos and for my, my 2d design as well. So, um, there, I use designer and I don't use their page page maker or whatever version of what they have there, but I use the, 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 the replacement for illustrator and the replacement for Photoshop. That's what I do 80% of the time. I drop back to only to Photoshop and illustrator when I have to. Um, and I'm doing that specifically to build the muscles of trying to figure out how to do it in affinity because eventually I'll stop paying for for Photoshop and, and, and Illustrator. And what's funny is it's not because they don't have too many, they have, they don't have the features I want. They have too many. Like I have not needed anything in Illustrator past 6.0 and I've not needed anything in Photoshop past 5.5 and I now have to pay rental on something, a bunch of extra features that I didn't need. <laughs> you know, that, that's my, that's my problem with uh, both of those pieces of software. So uh, next question. David Paskin in Miami, Florida writes, in a dreaded hybrid environment, would you try to connect opportunity, excuse me, in a dreaded hybrid environment, would you like to create opportunities for connection between on-site and online folks or allow each audience to have their own interactions? Go ahead, Bill. Whenever I hear the, this debate come up, I always think back to the Michael Jordan problem. A planetary class athlete, one of the greatest of all time in basketball, went to play baseball and was okay, but was not great. I can't imagine how he would have developed differently had he tried to play both basketball and baseball in the same period of time. Would his skills not have increased to the level that they did because he was not paying attention to his primary job? I think that's what I've heard Alex articulate, and I think I agree with him 100%. If you're not dedicated to a thing, you tend not to refine it as rapidly and make it the best it can be because your attention is split. And I think the hybrid is a good example of split attention. As much as you want to serve both audiences, is it really possible to get great at something when you're trying to do two things that are different? My two cents. Go ahead, Courtney. Can't hear you, Courtney. Sorry. I did click. Discipline is the key to this, and uh, we handle it here by having a moderator and, and Makana and have it very strictly set up. If you're going to have the audience members be able to talk to each other, that would be cacophony, and it would I don't think it would work, and there'd be no way to moderate it uh, efficiently. 
mm-hmm. I think. It would be quite difficult to do uh, without a lot of work. Um, so it would be a one-way, maybe a one-way communication controlled by a moderator back and forth between the audience for two-way communication. But having multiple audiences that could communicate with each other as well as watch the uh, the main uh, live situation, I think that would deteriorate to chaos. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, uh, David. I guess what I'm wondering about, though, is is the other, uh, I forget if it was yesterday or the day before, Alex, you were talking about why physically being at the at Zoomtopia was was a powerful experience and that and the dinner that you all had mm-hmm. and it got me thinking you know, there was a, a time when I I did an event a, a couple of years back it was a um they had some people gathering on a rooftop for a cocktail hour and they had other people they wanted to participate via Zoom and the question was should we try and create moments for the people who were physically at the event to connect with those people on Zoom. So could we set up, you know, Zoom stations, iPads around with headphones and people could walk over and maybe you even incentivize that. You make it sort of a, uh, you create a get to know you game. And so the people walk around and you have to ask different people questions and, or do you create something like that, but specific to each environment? And I, I guess that's what I'm not sure about. Is it more, is there value in trying to connect those two audiences or should we really be creating unique experiences for each of them? I mean, in some cases that we, we've definitely done, uh, we've connected those audiences. Like we've, we've done weddings where we have a wireless camera with a screen underneath it and a camera and it's two-way wireless to and to and from the camera. And we were in a Google Hangout of all things. And with a mic, little shotgun mic that was sticking out and shoulder mounted and someone walked through and just started talking to people. And you could literally talk to that camera and there were people coming in from India and there were people coming in from Greece and there were people, from, you know, that was, it was a, it was a Greek and Indian <laughs> wedding. So it was like, so we had all these people coming in from all these other places and it worked really well, you know, and then people felt like, and again, that was a situation where uh, they weren't really part of it in the sense that we didn't try to incorporate them other than they saw a live feed of the wedding. They saw, they saw why, but they, at least they got to experience it. And there's, I think there are cases for at least they got to experience it kind of thing. Um, and so that's better. I think that the, again, what I, what I would say is that it's really hard. Um, I think it's, 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 um, it's difficult to do that on a regular basis with a lot of people, you know, and, and what happens is, is that there is a, while people are happy to just be there for that moment, there is a, um, the, the thing that I've been starting to realize is there's kind of an emptiness that gets created by feeling like you're on the outside that you feel when you're in a hybrid event. And it's like this little hole that gets <laughs> formed inside you that you're not really there, you know? And, and I think we have to be very careful of that because again, what we've seen over the last decade, and it took me a little while to identify it, but what we've seen over the last decade is people will go to a hybrid event online they will give it good ratings. They'll say, that was great. I really enjoyed it. And the next show, they won't show up. And and it was, and it's like this mystery. It took us a long time to be thinking about it and pondering it. And the reason is, is they just don't, it doesn't have, it's not that it wasn't, it doesn't feel like they, they didn't get their money's worth, but there was something about it that had them feel on the outside. Because I've talked to people about it because I'm like, well, you went to this one, but you didn't go to this one. Well, you know, I was busy. It, it's not, I didn't like it. I didn't, it wasn't valuable. It wasn't all those things, but that you want it to be something that someone has to go to. You know, for a long time, I had to go to NAB. <laughs> you know, like I had to go to, you know, I felt like I had to be there. And at some point it stopped, you know, it's, you know, like, but the thing is, is that, but for 25 years, you know, like I didn't even think about it. 
you know, I didn't even think of it that I would be, um, uh, that I would ever not go to NAB. Like, you know, and that was the, and, and so what you want to do is get people to that point. I don't think you can do that for the online audience in a hybrid event. I think you'll just slowly, and the worst part is, is once they decide they're not going to go, getting them back is so hard. Like the, the amount of work that you have to do. So I feel like doing hybrids, I've kind of grown to believe that doing hybrids is actually worse than not doing anything at all. I'd rather them feel like they really want to be at something and then give them a digital event later than put them into something that, because I can tell you like, you know, most conferences that I go to, like I think Apple does a really good job. They just give you all the BODs, you get to watch the live stream, and then there's a bunch of open Q&As where you can sign up for things. It's probably a better solution. It's not a perfect solution, but it's a better solution than, than trying to do a hybrid all day, you know, which is kind of disastrous. Um, go ahead, Leland. I'm going to play ad, uh, devil's advocate on this one just for a moment because I do a lot of hybrid events in the medical industry. And for me, what we see anyway, for a lot of people in that field, and I think it has a lot to do with environment. If you're in an entertainment industry, a hybrid event isn't going to be your go-to, obviously. But in medical, a lot of folks really sometimes just need to show up to get their CEC credits. They don't care about the interaction. They have to be present. They have to be absorbing yeah, I, the information yeah. and the data. So it comes down to what is the hybrid event purpose. And if you want value-driven purpose to a hybrid mm -hmm. event, it has to have, like we said, we can segregate the interaction with those who are just there to view the event versus those who are actually at the event to engage, which I think is the key factor there is if you're going to arrive at the event, you're there to handshake, you're yeah. there to face to face. But if you're coming I, in I on a video you. feed, you're not there for that purpose. You're so, just there to learn and absorb. So, it's so really you're, you're doing the, you're talking about the one exception and I will totally agree with you. For continuing edu edu education credits, everybody that I've talked to would prefer to do the hybrid because they prefer to go online because what they do is they put it in a little window off in the corner and they go back to work. Um, what they don't want to do is actually have to show up and spend their day doing that. They'd rather spend their day doing all a bunch of other work and just show that they were there. And I know some of them that, that like the computer pays attention to whether they're doing extra other things. And so they bought a computer that just does that thing, <laughs> they go back to work on another computer. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, because it was, it was paying attention to their actions, you know? And so, so anyway, um, to you, you have, you do have a, a very solid connection. Continue adding edu credits are, are good. And it, but again, as the person sending that out, if all you're trying to do is make money, that's fine. But as the person doing the event, if you actually want them to listen to you, uh, for a continuing education credit, that's probably not the, the solution because now they're not doing anything. You know, like, you know, well, like that's, we engage with the online viewers through Zoom with a moderator, like David right. mentioned, and that's really the best interaction Again, you can get from them. No, exactly. But the people I talk to don't want to be engaged. They just want to turn it on, and they just want to—they just want to just do their, you know, do what they were doing before. Um, anyway, um, next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana, USA. When we talked about gear the other day, who bought all the things that were recommended, and are you happy with your purchases? Go ahead, Mitchell, real quick. Well, I couldn't have bought all of them, but I bought some of them. But the problem with buying a thing is it ends up with a lot of other stuff. And that other stuff's going to sit in that corner for quite a while. Yeah. Next question. And Jeff, <clears throat> Jeff Francis from Columbia, South Carolina, in search of a button cover for the ATEM Mini FTB button or recommended service to 3D print a few for me. There are several designs on thing Thingiverse, but I don't have a 3D printer. Go ahead, Courtney, real quick. Buy a 3D printer. There, you can get one for under $100. You'll find hundreds of other things you can do with it. 
Jeff, send me a link to what it is and I'll send you a, a cover. So just, just send me the link. Well, I'll get my son to print it out. My son has become like a master of printing, so I'll just hand it to him. Um, so just, just send me the link of the one you want to use from Thingiverse and we'll, we'll send you one. I've got a couple of printers. Uh, That's a question. button I want to uh, remap. Yeah. yeah, it's really useful when you need it, but, but I'm thinking of building one that you have to flip up and everything else we talked about the other day. But, but send, me, send me the one you want. We'll, we'll get it out to you. Next question. Wayne Ma from Park City, Utah. Any uh, looking for HDMI cables, 4K UHD, B&H pushes Pure Stone. What's your thoughts? Mitchell, real quick. Yeah, I got a whole bunch of those. Um, also recommend the Condor Blue braided HDMI cables. They're excellent. Next question. Henry Ramos from Yonkers, New York. Any cool projects to share by our panelists? Interesting shows or new hardware test per perhaps? Uh, can I go to Leland real quick? I was honored to work with a neurological uh, event just recently where we managed to premiere Robin's Wish, which is the true backstory behind Robin Williams' death. Uh, we got to meet Susan Williams and spend a little time with her. So for me, that was definitely a, a one-off. I enjoyed it a lot. All right. And we are now changing subjects. We are really excited to have, I think, a lot of the remotes here. The uh, the um, the remotes are all here. Wow, it's good to see all of you here. Um, you always know when it's a big full uh, a full house here, and a lot of audio aficionados and musicians. We're going to be talking about a new song. Um, who should I throw this off to? Who's going to give me a little overview of what we did here, Victor? Well, yeah, I'll just start real quickly. It's going to be Jeff Francis' show. He was the producer for this um, song, song number four, 19 months into production for a lot of good <laughs> reasons, by the way. It means what people are working and so on. But an incredible effort put out by the band. Um, just another example, um, if you have not uh, joined the remotes and you have any kind of talent, especially technical talent, we're, you know, we're looking for video editors. We know you're out there. We know you're working on other things. Come on in. The water's fine. We're really a fun group to work with, whether you're musically talented or technically talented. Um, we do continue to do things. I mean, it, they may take a while, but it continues to happen. So that being said, I'm going to give it over to Jeff Francis, who was the mastermind and did incredible work uh, along with uh, 17 or 18 other members that were involved in this uh, wonderful effort uh, just for you, Alex. Amazing. Okay. Jeff? Alice, do you want to introduce the song since this was actually your choice? You know, I just, I, this is, this is a yes, leave it. And I, as a, as a kid, I, um, I love that song and, um, I love the different versions of it. So there was, uh, you know, there in, there's the one that's on the album, there's a single version and then there's an acapella version, um, that they did. And so, and I think that when I had originally requested it, I was really thinking about it. I don't think we got this far on this on this song. I was really thinking about how to put it into Atmos, you know, into surround because it's got so many, you know, these kind of syncopated uh, voices and everything else. And so I was, at the time I was working on a lot of Atmos stuff. And so I was like, oh, I, I know how I could put this into this and this and this. And so when I made the request, it was just a song I love from my childhood or, or teenhood. And, um, and also um, I just thought that, I thought it'd be great it'd be a great fodder for the band. It's just such a, it had so many good uh, layers to it. And so that, so when Victor, Victor, I think asked me, what would you, what would you have any requests? I was like, leave it. <laughs> so, so anyway, that was, that was the, that was the backstory from, from my perspective. So I, I think I was also that 13 year old kid who loved this tune when it came out. Uh, in fact, I actually dug up, I have the owner of a lonely heart 45. Uh, yep. And on the backside, 
is leave it. So I still have that, uh, love this and, uh, couldn't, couldn't imagine that 13 year old kid thinking that, you know, almost 40 years later, here we are. And we have a new version of this song that that's, uh, definitely a, a tribute to the song and a love of the song. So it's, it's similar to the original and kind of goes off in its own remotes way. And uh, we got a lot of stuff to share about it. Maybe we should listen to it first. Sure. And for all the panelists, uh, just make sure that you turn off your, well, I guess it doesn't matter as much for us anymore because we have ISO, but just to be sure, uh, turn off mute, actually software mute other than the one that's going out, just to be absolutely sure that even if it's on, it might affect the, the, um, the sound. can feel no sense of measure, no illusions as we take refuge in young man's pleasure, breaking down the dreams we Up down the digging it out, better lay your climb. Get 
I was hardware muted. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> that was great. I was in there like, why am I making, I'm making any noise. I changed my, my pipeline. Uh, fantastic. I love the, uh, as a music video, I love that. I mean, we, I think we've been figuring out how to, you know, if we're not going to build a whole music video for it, how to represent it. And I just loved that. just going through that and just seeing what it takes to put that thing together. Um, was, was really good. That's really, really great. I love the, um, the violin going up, right? And then, you know, like in the, you know, like, I was like, oh, that's, that, re that really works. <laughs> so, so anyway, it was really good. Jeff, do you want to give us a little more color on, on what it took to put it together? Yeah. So video wise, we have uh, a lot of plans and we have uh, probably half of the band already tracked, um, have sh videos shot, um, so actually we began with the drum tracking session, uh, which um, you helped out with in the Rialto Theater in Chicago and that uh, Mike and, and Pete and uh, someone else went and they shot and they, they tracked drums there. Um, but that, so this is why Victor made the plea for more video editors, because we need people to help us build these amazing videos we're working. So this was a nice little way to look at sort of the complexity of the Pro Tools session. And actually, I had to, in order to even fit it on a, on a 4K screen, I had to sort of hide all the auxiliary tracks. And you're only <laughs> seeing, actually, actually, that's about probably two-thirds of the tracks of the entire session that you see in wow. that major window there. It's amazing. And I love, I, I really love the whole zooming in and zooming out and really seeing what's going on. Cause I think people just don't get their head around it. I think, I actually think you've almost created a new genre there. I, I've not seen that before. Maybe I have, but most of the time when someone releases something without a music video, they do like the lyrics version and they put the lyrics up while they're talking. I think that the more people should do <laughs> the pro tools, the pro tools view is a, is a really, really cool way to, to show that. Um, now how many people were involved? How many people were, um, part of the, the process so total of of 18 people involved um so i think there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 37 or 39 vocal tracks yeah so we actually split the vocals up into a lot of different departments and multi-tracked many of them um there's uh drums was uh I think 17 mics in the tracking session and and lots of takes that were edited together uh, how we began was actually used the original track as a reference and we mapped the tempo of that. Um, so it wasn't played to a click. So we're kind of following their tempo and then built a MIDI session so that people, when they were going to sing, they had, you know, in previous remote songs, Brian Anderson would build a MIDI mock-up of the entire song so that you had something to sing along to. And we began this one hoping to have a much quicker turnaround than 19 months, but you know, it takes what it takes. And so our 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 speed track was let's use the original as something to sing along to, but we also wanted uh people to have like a piano reference. If you're singing the the second uh chorus part you need to know exactly which pitches you need to get so there was a midi piano part of all of those so you could solo up and hear exactly which notes you needed to do so we actually um i actually built an entire score of this now it's going to flip through really fast because it's again it's really too small to see what's going on in the wow. score now what did you build the score in uh, i did this in finale um, and so from finale, I could then um, export all the MIDI 
from that. So if you look at this score, which again, is kind of small, but at the very top, you have two lead vocal tracks. And then what uh, is the background vocals, which is the whole prelude anywhere we're singing anything but leave it. And so there's five parts there that were done by at least two, but usually three people. So that's 15 tracks. Then there's the chorus vocals, which was another 15 tracks of the people singing uh, leave it. Um, and then we have, you know, guitars and electric bass and keyboards. Again, multi many multiple tracks of those. Um, this was just guides to send to people. Right. Um, Victor playing soprano sax, Todd playing electric violin. And then we actually had a string quartet. Um, and so part of the concept of this was like, how do you put a string quartet into, into a rock band? And so... Here you should see, uh, this is right at the beginning of the song, after we get the prelude and we get the the rhythmic uh, do-dits, do-dits, do-dits. And if you look, background vocal two and violin one are the exact same notes and rhythms. So the string quartet is working along with the voices doing the same kind of thing. Background vocal right. three and violin two. Um, and so you see all of those. And so in the beginning of the song, those strings just really kind of dub double the voices. Right. And then later on, they serve to like drive things along. Um, so that was the concept behind adding in this this string quartet. It's great. It's fantastic. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead, uh, Leland. You can use the back end. I know you're, you haven't been here very yeah, long. Yeah, I haven't touched that. I, I keep forgetting that on yeah. that side. I just wanted to mention yeah. something. We have to give credit to Jeff on the fact that he compiled this video in very short time. I spent a month with Dolly Images trying to come up with a video for this production, and yet the words of the song didn't give us the images we really wanted to see, so it didn't do the music justice. And Jeff made the right choice to say, no, we're going to scrap that video, we're going to put it on the shelf, and we're going to start over and do it again with like a month to go before this premiere. So, Jeff, wonderful job on putting that all together before the end run. And and I, I will say, I, I do think that I would love to see, I would, I would, I would, subscribe to a channel on YouTube that just showed songs just going across the Pro Tools or Logic or whatever and just be able to watch them. Uh, I, I hadn't thought of that concept until I saw this video and I was just, I'm sure that they're out there somewhere. I just haven't seen them. I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. I really like that. I go ahead, Lois. So I loved seeing the the music in the technological technological format. And I do hope that when you decide to do a different video, that you'll either include some of this or maybe put out two so people can choose. But I just, I loved that. That was just so astonishing. And I never knew how much stuff went into making a song. That's incredible. So thank you. I just want to note that since I've got about half the performances of this in my video folder, there's a couple of things I didn't realize until I was watching people actually perform. Number one, the lead vocal on that is our own Jeff. That surprised me. I didn't realize it was you doing lead vocal. But then another lead vocal comes in, and it's his daughter, Megan, who is absolutely astonishing. So when we get to the actual music video at some point down the line, you will be amazed at how much talent there is, and you'll start to connect who did what. I didn't realize it was Greg Curtis playing that fabulous bass line, at least in part. And I don't know all the breakdowns, but so many of our friends contributed so many fabulous parts to this mm -hmm. uh, that as we get to the music video, I think it'll do nothing but expand your appreciation for how much work went into this. Go ahead, Todd. I want my first lob over the bow 
to be about Jeff Francis. So Jeff, just cover your eyes while I do this to you. Um, I've only been involved in two remote songs uh, so far. And of course, Brian Anderson on, on, on Greg's tune last time is just amazing in terms of his guide tracks and everything he did. But I want to really speak to Jeff's amount of work in this, that score that you just saw, the guide tracks. I was, I was, you know, I was uh, kind of sweating a little bit because I knew we weren't going to use click. And, you know, as a session musician who's done this for 30 years, I'm used to working with click in a tune that this, that it is this complex and we didn't do that. And it's because of Jeff's extraordinary effort to score all that out, to arrange it, and then to do all those guy tracks and things. I just, Jeff, I just many, many thanks and much respect and kudos to you as a, as a fellow musician. Just, uh, it, it's been, it's been great doing this with you. It was easy. It was good. Were there certain things that, that you, what have you learned from the ones before that affected this one, the production of this one? What did you say, like from the ones in the past, we're not gonna do that again, or we have to do something different. Was there a certain thing that, that you decided you're definitely not gonna run, go into that hole again? <laughs> Anything you learned, Jeff? Um, or anybody? Well, doing, doing vocals, doing a chorus of vocals in isolation and, you know, spread out through time and across the globe is very difficult. Normally when a chorus sings together, they're constantly right. listening and they're tuning and they're, they're aligning their, their rhythm and their pitch. And so what happens is everyone sings to the same track. So they're all singing to the same rhythm, to the same pitches, but everybody interprets that slightly differently. And not until you get all the pieces together, do you begin to be here the problems that just naturally occur. <laughs> right, and so right. there's a ton of work and this falls under what, what I term mix prep, preparing tracks for mixing. And it's all the editing. And, and there is a, a good amount of uh, tuning and timing that goes into that. I mean, adjusting the, the, the tuning of things that are perfectly uh, beautiful performances and they sound great in isolation, but when you put 15 voices that have sung in isolation and every one of them sounds great, and you put them together, they don't all agree. The starts and ends of their words don't agree. That's things that musicians do. You know, the remotes, we've been talking for, for two years about, wouldn't it be great if we had a jet and we could just fly around and pick everybody up and then, you know, maybe land in the Midwest somewhere and I'll do a concert together. That's gonna happen someday. Yeah. Um, but just not yet. So in the meantime, what we need to do is we need to to use some tools to do this. And um, I'm actually going to have JJ show a video. Uh, this is about a minute and a half that shows before and after um, some isolated vocals, before and after tuning and timing. And so it's really obvious you can hear what's going on.
Now, what are you doing as you're pulling those together? What are you, what are you affecting? So this was all done in the software Melodyne. And so I'm able to, to move the, the start and ends and the pitch center and the pitch drift. So, and I'm able to increase or decrease people's vibrato. And uh, none of this was done to perfection. It, It was all made close so we don't want you know we don't want dead on you know robotic drone voices but it needs to be enough that it doesn't distract and um because of the nature of this song that there's not really a lot of harmony instruments so there's not an acoustic guitar strumming something there's not a piano that's playing the full chords the vocal is really that Uh, this is actually done where the the thirds of the chords are tuned to be in tune. They're not the equal temperament. So the, if it's a minor chord or a major chord, the third is slightly off of where the, where a tuner would say it should be. So it's tuned a little more by ear. I want to add, um, Jeff's masterful, uh, comping, a vocal comping. You've heard that term. That's what that means. When you take something like that, which is a very good effort by 15 individuals everywhere. Mm-hmm. And you can actually using a tool like Melodyne, who people think of T-Pain and auto t- No, that is actually a tool that can be used in the tool drawer to do what you just saw happen. And right. it takes Jeff and people like Pete and others who were involved in this project, just hours of concentrated effort to make that happen also if you'll notice at the end of the tune maybe jeff you'll talk about this there are four different solos happening at the same time and they manage not to step on each other which is also an amazing comping uh job by jeff because i am sure when i was playing it i couldn't hear todd or you know i i couldn't hear andy but bringing that together so that the voices stick out is another wonderful thing and uh it's what takes time and it's what takes pros like Pete and, and Jeff uh, doing that. So the commendation really pay attention to, to what you heard, because it is, uh, it is, it's really something given the space that it, and the time that it took and uh, the virtuality of what we do. Uh, it's, it's quite, quite amazing work by all. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, Harshid. Yes, I wanted to actually uh, speak to you about that. The layering was amazing of all the different sounds. And again, I wasn't really paying attention to the screen and I was really just deep into the music. So I really congratulate the remotes uh, for the second track on Office Hours that has been phenomenal. And I really enjoyed the the violins and the different strings. But as Alex uh, started off with, it's taking it to different layers and levels. And every time you did transitions to show off a new person or a vocal that you wanted me to pay attention to, you did a phenomenal job at going to that point. So I'm looking forward to this music video. And I remember seeing the first one with the dark background and the way you guys handled that one. So let's see what's coming up for the next one. Second one. That was the second video, I believe. Yeah, for the second yeah. one. Yeah. A, lot, a lot of tricks you, in the back. You have to dig back there further, further, you know, into the into the first one. Yeah, go ahead, Greg. 
you you had asked you know about some things that we possibly have learned, and I think one of the things that we definitely learned is patience. Yeah. And because and and things, you know, things don't come together right away the way you think they're going to. And you work the material and you work the material and you work the material and it starts coming together and it starts coming together. And there were a lot of things that 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 Jeff kind of put off till the end, like like putting all those solos together. There was, you know, there was a certain way and he wouldn't know until he had them. And he right. played them all, and he and it's like a puzzle, right? Um, but just the, the the patience, you know, you work on it a little bit. Okay, you time this section. Okay, okay, maybe then tomorrow I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna fix the pitch, right. you know. Okay, and two days later I'm gonna I'm gonna time the next section. So it's just, you know, it, patience. Yeah. And um, you know, for that for that number of things, and in terms of the voices, in any remote situation, <laughs> remote situation, um, the 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 pre, you know, when you heard the voices, the original voices as they were submitted, that's really about the best you can hope for. You know, right. the the pitch is the the pitch is close, but it's mm-hmm. never going to be, it's never going to be dead on. Right, you know, and so that, that it it just it just takes a lot of work. So, but I think patience was one of the things we learned. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, go, Jeff. So, two things that Victor talked about: um, the the four solos that you hear in the end uh, was an idea that I had thinking about Atmos. I wanted really the song to end with like you know just just the kitchen sink of material. Um, so you have, and they they have staggered entrances. Um, there's a Hammond solo by John and then Victor comes in on sax and then Todd with electric violin and then Andy with electric guitar. And actually there's a harmony electric guitar there. So there's five things going on. Um, but you know, that was one that would the many times, probably for a year, I was saying, just trust me, this is going to work. And if it doesn't, we'll throw it out. But it was like, just trust me, just trust me. You know, it was like, right. like, you sure this is going to work? And I was like, yeah, this is going to work somehow. This is going to work. And it's really, you know, we did a lot of work editing those phrases right. of their solos because they didn't hear, you know, Victor recorded his solo. I think it was the second thing that was recorded. So there was nothing else. And, and would so it, would I it have been easier to his. Would it have been easier to put things, or not easier, but would you have ever thought of putting, like having one person record one part and then send that to the next person and then send that the compile of those two to the next person so that the the progressive folks that are hearing the that are playing into something that they can hear or do you think that would just make it more complicated or more time consuming well i don't know how it could be more time consuming than it was (laughs) considering the duration (laughs) and that probably would have been a better way to go um but it's not the way we went. No, no, no. I'm, so, I'm just curious because yeah. I, you know, like with a lot of those things, I, I'm always wondering, like, because it means the first person doesn't have um, the, the, uh, I, I had talked to someone at, at you know, what, that we were working with and they had this weird thing that they were doing, not weird, but unique thing that they were doing for some of the songs they were doing online, which is that they were, they were doing this circular thing, you know, so when they were working together, the first person would play, the second person would play, the third person would play. When they got to the end, they'd start over and have the first person play again. And then the second person, and, and it was like they they kept on, and what they did is they found that that, that 
they did it and they said that in some sections of the song, they had done it four or five times and it pulled everything together because they kept on responding to each other over time, you know, and they, and, and part of it was, they said, they're not very good at, they're not very good at logic. They were like, like, we don't know how to edit it together. So we just figured it was easier to record it over and over and over again. And it, and, and so, and then they all had to do is stack it up. But I, I was curious about, I'd never heard that before. And I was curious if, if that had come up in a thought process. Go ahead, Todd. That's, that's sometimes what I, that, like in the string quartet parts, that happened for me too, right? So right. I, would, I, would, I would record this and this and this, and then I go over and record something else just to mm-hmm. kind of match better what I did in some other part. So right. yeah, this is a practice that's painfully normal, when, especially when you're working alone mm-hmm. or against tracks. And then as, as far as the other things go, so, you know, somebody has to be first. But one of the nice things about working with our crew is we do have a folder. So, you know, as stuff gets put in there, you can just, since it's all bounced from beginning to end, mm-hmm. uh, we can pull in other solos or other parts. And, and whenever it's delivered to you with a few extra things, you really do have the, the ability to mute things and to solo them up and just to play against them. So that's kind of available for us as a general yeah. practice. And go ahead, Andrew. Oh, yeah, just to the part about the solos at the end. Um, when Jeff submitted the, the arrangement and I saw, okay, there's going to be all these o- gradually overlapping solos. And I just was like, okay, I got to record mine at the end. I got to hear everything else before I lay something down. And then I I did like a hundred takes to get that one couple of licks. And, and I said to Jeff, I said, this is like throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall. How's this ever going to work? And somehow they made it work. They they peeled the spaghetti off the wall and arranged it in such a way that it worked. Yeah. So kudos. Hey, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, this reminded me a lot of uh, Playing for Change, which if you look on the internet and look up their videos, they did a very si- a similar thing where they had people all over the world playing individual instruments uh, one at a time and adding their tracks as they went along. And I think it did beautiful. You did a beautiful job of mixing, especially the background vocals. The I put on my stereo headphones so I could hear the imaging in stereo, and it was perfect the way it was spread, and the the way that the uh, solos would come into the center and play off each other it was very well well mixed, well done. Go ahead, Leland. I think Jeff hit it on the head earlier where he mentioned the timing and the tone when it comes to the singers and the players as well. There's always that first person that has the time to come out and get those bass tracks, which we usually expect drums, bass, and a little bit of guitar or some vocal bass, whatever we need to work with. So if we lay down stuff like in this song, I was just doo-wopping basically through the whole thing. I laid my tracks down early, but I had to come back again after we hear the tone and the timing of those who are all meshing together. We may have to come back and redo our parts just to fit in. You might hear some of my voice timing off a little bit in my tracks in the song just because of the fact that they're hard to edit. And Jeff's got to do a whole lot of work on the engineering end just to get us to time up together, unless he's using automated tools, of course. But that, I think, is the key factor that we have to deal with every time we try to mesh all of us as singers together and instruments together, it, it's all about timing. Good, Victor. Yeah, one of the things that we've benefited from in being together almost for two years now, and this song taking 19 months, is that there is a sense of trust. We give things to the producer and we simply trust the producer to do their job. And that means letting our ego go out of the way. I could have recorded the second person to record that solo. And you know what? He's either going to be A, be able to use some of it somewhere along the way, or B, come back at me and say, 
give it another try or whatever it is. But developing that trust in each other, and especially the producers, to do what they do best is one of the things that I think real artists out there have to do. And certainly it's applied to us. Uh, and that means you let go. We serve the music. We always say that to each other. Uh, that and, and we did learn, as Greg mentioned here, that the time factor and that pressure in this type of organization, it, it's not appropriate. When it is, we put it on, but as close of cat herding as I was doing in the beginning, wasn't appropriate. So we adjust to the room. And, uh, and again, kudos to the musicians and the technicians who really make it happen at the end. Go ahead, Jeff. So I'd love to see this and, and a plan for this to be an Atmos mix eventually. And that was a thought from the very beginning of having, you know, so many vocal parts layered and then the strings, the string quartet, so we can spread those out, the multiple solos at the end um, and actually taking the the Victor and Todd, sort of that electric violin and sax that you hear them, they've what the parts that they're playing sometimes through the song are actually these these uh, ad-libbed vocal parts of John Anderson's original that, that are pulled out and they're, they're covering those parts so that there's a lot of material here to spread out in that, uh, in that spatial field. So hopefully that won't be another 19 months. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Go and I have to say, you know, Pete, Pete unfortunately couldn't be here today. He's in somewhere, I think in Greece working, um, but a masterful job on the mix. So we, we kind of, I worked on all the editing, tuning, timing, comping, and then just handed that over to Pete to mix and then would give him comments on things and just uh, fitting together all those solos at the end in stereo, really difficult and amazing, masterful job. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, go ahead, Greg. That's um, Jeff. Jeff just covered. I was I was going to give a big shout out to St. Pete um, for, uh, you know, for his again, you know, his his knack and his ability, you know, to create space and to create that little ear candy that's that's all over that. And sometimes in front and sometimes just behind and just all over. I don't know how he does it, but it's 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 magic. Absolutely. Let's jump into the questions. First question. Douglas Carmichael, what drove the choice of conventional rock drums instead of the gated reverb on the original track? Any, any uh, take? Uh, go ahead, Jeff. So conceptually, you know, the original song has definitely a very 80s vibe. They, they did the vocals uh, using a different set of tools. You know, they put it into a, a sampler and played the vocals. Um, and then the drums certainly have that 80s gated reverb. Um, so this is a, a largely, you know, these are all real people playing real instruments. So uh, except for maybe uh, I think the bongos are actually a MIDI bongo um, buried there in the intro. But um, so, yeah, it, JJ, do you have the photo of, of the Rialto, the drums? Uh, so we can see the beautiful Rialto theater where uh, Mike recorded the drums. Um, and if you go to the second shot, you can actually see the reverse image and see the entire theater. So the idea was we're going to record real drums in a, in a really big, beautiful space. And so that was conventional drums. There is actually a little bit of gated reverb in the track, but uh, we pulled it back. Mike Sweeney, can you talk a little bit to uh, the drum mix and how that was done in the theater and how you guys uh, set that up in order to minimize bleeding and so on? 
Um, that was kind of difficult. Uh, <laughs> it was mostly um, basically just to capture a live performance. And um, the goal was really to capture the the, maj the majesty of the theater. My the, the connection was my daughter actually worked at the Rialto Theater in Joliet. And she uh, enabled us to get a, a decent price. And thanks to Alex for all his, his assistance in getting that. And the pictures, when we get them, is just stunning, the theater. But as far as recording the drums, it, again, it was just to capture a live performance and basically miking as much as we could, uh, double miking as much as we could, capturing the room in overheads. And uh, as far as isolation, it wasn't uh, that really big of a part because we, we we couldn't. I mean, we were trying to capture the video at the same time as the recording, and it came down to isolating uh, particular instruments within the drum kit and doing take after take after take after take. <laughs> Go ahead, Jeff. So Mike mentioned take after take after take. Uh, I think 27, 26 takes of drums. Um, some played the entire song, sung different sections. And, you know, that when I got those to comp, you know, it's just an embarrassment of riches. I get to pick and choose, you know, w what fill of mics do I want? You know, he's got these seven great fills to transition sections. And I can go through, pick and choose in that drum comp. And I, chose from you know a, a majority of those takes to pick you know my favorite grooves my favorite fills what what had the best feel here in this part of the song what worked for this part of the song and so it's a it's a composite that's what the comp is it's a composite of all those takes next question Josh Kaufman from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania writes, congratulations remotes on a fantastic release. Can you detail what guides were used to get the original vocals close to the required sync? Were re-recordings responsible for a significant part of your production time? Go ahead, Jeff. So like I said, we started from the original track and built a MIDI mock-up. So I had the score. And the great thing about the score is I could uh, put parts out so you could get a piece of sheet music if you read sheet music and then also that would have a piano track of your particular vocal thing and the score is a great way for me personally to get a global overview sorry about that a global overview of the entire piece and kind of keep a roadmap um, it's also really helpful in assigning parts based on vocal range because you can break up a particular part for a tenor for a soprano for an alto voice and so we had to arrange that because there's some of those parts are men and women some are just men and so it's all fitting people in and then people sang to those guides so um when i sang i would usually sing to a mix of the basic track that we had whatever we had recorded up to that point and some piano that had just the pitches I was supposed to be singing at that point. Next question. Uh, Tommy Schantz writes from St. Paul, Minnesota. Did you use Maestro for recording any takes? I wonder if that is something that might work so the chorus could meld together. Any Maestro? No. Any takers? No. I don't know what Maestro is. Is that a? I don't know. <laughs> so, so I think we're gonna have to look that the up. The answer is probably not. We'll look it up. Maybe on the next one. Maybe on uh, try number uh, not eight. Next question. 
Roscoe Jones from Madison, Indiana writes, has 3F Jeff used this to teach his students this semester? Might it be available as STEMs or individual tracks for educational use? Good, Jeff. Uh, not yet, because uh, remotes have a have a fun thing that we like to keep our premieres secret up until the point that they premiere. Um, so they've they've seen parts of it, but not really uh, the whole thing yet. And uh, I think STEMs will be coming. Outstanding. Next question. Andrew Lipnick from San Francisco, California. Did knowing that the song would be mixed in Atmos affect parts and arrangement decision? It sounded like it a little bit. Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, it definitely did. Definitely the the four solos was that idea. The the string quartet, that was all Atmos decisions, the multiple layered voices. And uh, Pete definitely, when he did the drum tracking, mic'd for Atmos. Go ahead, Brian. I went on the hunt for synth patches that had multiple channels. So the synth patches that I recorded were seven channels. I didn't know what would happen to them. And to get them to work in stereo, they got a lot of that got tossed away, which is fine, you know, serving the music. Right, right, absolutely. Andrew? Yeah, a couple of things for at least the my guitar parts were uh, there were harmony parts played. So I'd play, you know, uh, one part and then harmonize over it and deliver those separately for sure as separate tracks. Um, and then there's a section in the middle of the song where the song kind of breaks down a bit. And you hear um, a lot of sort of wailing. You, you might hear a little bit of wailing feedback in the background. And I was just going to do one take of that. And then I went, oh, it's going to be Atmos. So I'll do multiple takes of it, see what works, deliver that. And I think what Pete and Jeff ended up doing was sort of layering those. Um, and for the stereo mix, it works one way. But it'll be really cool to hear it in Atmos when you can just spread it around. And I'm really looking forward to that. Absolutely. Um, next question. Uh, Kenny Hampton from Greenville, Illinois writes, first rate, thank you. During production, at what points were the entire band able to hear full mix progressing? Yeah, go ahead, Jeff. So as uh, mixes come along, we, uh, so I was mainly working with Pete. We shared tracks uh, separately out of uh, things just so we could share a Google uh, Dropbox folder with the full Pro Tools. Um, I don't have the same plugins as Pete, so I could open his session, but not really hear it the way he would hear it. So we would get on Zooms together. And then as the mix came together, we would um, we would play them in meetings. Um, and I have a guest here with me. Egan's here. Hello. Hey there. <laughs> Sorry, I'm late. Glad I could join. Great work. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, uh, did you? How was the experience for you? doing the singing. I mean, this was incredible to be able to work with my dad on this. Um, I feel like I really saw his vision early on and it was really cool to watch the like big puzzle come together as he kept adding things. And I won't lie, the first time that I heard all of the vocal tracks together, I was like, all right, where is this going now? But it was really amazing to see just excellent production and excellent mixing and engineering to finally fit all those puzzle pieces together. And when I heard the final version a couple of weeks ago, I was just, I, I was just smiling. So I, I was so excited. That's great. Fantastic. Uh, Victor. 
I just wanted to add on to the fact of, you know, when we listen to the mixes, well, they're always available to us. I mean, the, the stuff is in a drive that we all have access to, but there are times when the, when the meeting that, you know, uh, Jeff or the producer will bring in a mix. And, you know, at first, sometimes I call them cringe moments because you're like, okay, let's see what this is. And it's amazing because you get to see some of those cringy moments turn into musical moments, you know, and that that is done uh, by the, the musical talent and the, by the technical talent. So um, the, the raw is there, but it really takes craft people uh, to take some of that raw and turn it into something that's musical. You hear Jeff talking about this feel in this pocket. And these are these uh, illusory terms that we artists use uh, to describe that magical moment when art actually happens. You know, in the raw, it can be um, very dry, if you will, but under the right hands and the right sculpture. And some of that sculpturing takes place during the meetings. We kid at each other. We'll poke at each other. We'll back channel somebody about some vocal or whatever happens. Uh, and all of a sudden you just see this incremental improvement and then at the end you go wow i can't believe that we made that out of this even though it took this long or, or whatever it happens to be it's an incredibly fun process and i really encourage you guys that are not participating to come on in uh because we're working on more stuff and it's not like this is going to go anywhere and we have a core team of members of teams that we trust and we know and we'll, and we know we can get it done but we always need that new infusion of blood that 2.0 that 3.0 that might give us a different kick in a different direction or whatever and so i'll just keep pushing for that because you're missing out and not being part of this little side huddle uh, that happens on tuesdays and meetings and all the absolutely. laughter and stuff that pursues absolutely yeah go ahead yeah. Todd. calling back to uh to those to that video compilation that jeff made with the with the tuning like uh, before and after tuning after using melodyne you don't necessarily want to have a full mix every time when things are kind of kind of um kind of still coming together i guess they'd say and sometimes it's just really great to have the drums and the bass and the guitars and anything that's or even midi tracks just there to to work and so uh when the guide tracks are done super well that makes everything really easy and you don't need a full mix andy yeah, because it's an iterative process, um, just what Todd was saying, um, you'll, at least for me, I know I'll come up with different parts if I don't hear everything. Sometimes I want to be influenced by a part. Like, I'll listen, I listened to what Dale played because we needed to work that together as the two guitarists on this song. Um, but then I'll turn off other things because I'm like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to be overly influenced by what Todd's playing, for example. Um and then I'll listen to it against that. And then maybe I'll go back and forth and play something a little different. But yeah, it's you don't want to have too much going on so that you you get the ideas popping into your head. Absolutely. Yeah. Next question. James Babbitt from San Diego, California. How do you handle the music rights of the song to put it on YouTube? Uh, Jeff, did you, did, did you guys... Have you guys talked through that? Or we just haven't put it on? We put it on our, our YouTube. <laughs> yeah, we have. I mean, uh, it, YouTube is a, an aggregator. So YouTube does handle the payment, but YouTube will put ads on copyrighted music or you'll get. Uh, so we will we'll find be out. working on that. We played the song on this show. So we're after the show. We'll find out 
um, how serious yes is about their their copyright. So there's a couple different ways that that, that can happen. They can um, demonetize it. They cannot do anything. They just track it, and then nothing happens. We don't see any flags. Um, and then we get a flag and says it's demonetized, or or they can you know. So there's a couple different ways, or they can strike us, you know. And um, I doubt that yes is going to strike it. Um, but but we'll find out <laughs> when we finish this show, and then we'll have a good idea. The the main thing is we live in a world where we don't care about the monetization. So really, where people get when they put stuff up on YouTube that they worry about it is people who are making money on the ad sales, you know, and they want to put something up and, and have a million people listen to it and make money on that. And we don't care about that from, from a YouTube perspective. And so, so if it's just a, if it's just a, a flag, we're not going to worry about it. <laughs> Next question. Douglas Carmichael writes, what workflow management tools did you use? Were they Avid Native or third party like LucidLink? Go ahead, Jeff. As far as sharing the Pro Tools sessions, that was just a shared Dropbox folder. So all the audio files and uh, Pro Tools sessions were in there. And every time the Pro Tools session gets worked on, it's you know, put a new version. So it's a save as. So there's versioning. We can always go back. Um, and then we use G Drive, Google Drive. And there's all kinds of documents in there where we keep uh, who's performing on which parts. And that's where we share PDFs of score and share backing tracks and guides. How many versions were there? Do you know how many versions that were saved up there? I think this final one is called um, Leave It Mastered Version 7 Alt 2. <laughs> Very good. Uh, next question. <laughs> oh, Greg, Greg before, before we jump to the next one, Greg. Oh yeah, no. I, I was just going to say we we try to we try to keep that whole part simple and not you know right. not involve a lot of a lot of extra extra steps and stuff like that. And the the um, the shared sessions on on Dropbox is something that we started in uh, song three, and it really really worked well. So they carried it over to four, and it really worked well for them too. So I think that's a that's a a good platform. And the Google Drive thing has worked well for us since the very beginning. So. You know, it's all there. Everybody's got access to it all the time. So it's pretty straightforward. That's great. Next question. JJ McKenna from Santa Venetia, California writes, did the band use a particular microphone to ensure that the vocal records were similar? Go ahead, Leland. Yes, we did for the primary fact that we weren't auto-tuning. We're just doing raw audio across the board. We asked that all the audio participants use a Shure SM58 to try and match the vocal presence. So that was where most of the vocals came from. There may have been other mics used if those weren't available, but those would have had to have been uh, post-edited. Yeah, and they're a lot less sensitive to the environment, right? I mean, so that's one of the big things, one of the big advantages there as well. Um, yeah, it's you know, a dynamic also... mic versus a, a condenser mic. So it's going to reduce a lot of the background noise. Next question. Leland Best from Karuna writes, where will be able to find the Leave It video link to share with friends? Go ahead, Jeff. So we'll get it uh, hosted up probably on Vimeo and then a link in the Office Hours Remotes feature page. That's great. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael asks, why didn't you use reverb on the vocal doo-doo parts uh, like the original? Uh, go ahead, Jeff. Uh, there is reverb on there, just uh, tastes have changed. So it's a little different um, sort of tastes now in 2022 than in uh, 1983. And there's actually uh, a little bit of flange on there, sort of a throwback to even older, yes, uh, from the 70s, but uh, minimal amounts of those two things. 
any last words, uh, anything that, that, that we haven't covered about it? Um, nothing. Uh, I, what happened was we had a ton of questions and I said, okay, I can't ask any more questions. And <laughs> we just blew through eight questions in eight minutes. Um, but the, uh, um, is there, so I guess, one, yeah, go ahead. Uh, in the, um, so in the middle section of the song where it kind of breaks down and you get those guitar, uh, guitar things going on before the big bridge what I call the interlude. So part of one of our, our documents in Google drive was simply a, a song map of uh, just listing timings and sections and what's going on. Um, and so the, our MIDI score and our finale score and our bars and beats in pro tools all line up. So if that's a great thing that if I look on, the the musical score and i look at you know section k is at bar 97 if i go to bar 97 in the pro tool session that's where i am so it makes it really easy for everybody to navigate but in that section of the song both andy and dale played submitted guitar parts and they played that same guitar part um, but they played it slightly differently and uh, one of them did it in a couple of octaves so that was a place where rather than trying to like perfectly match their two performances and rather than trying to asking them to recut one of them we simply took one of the ones and used it as a feed for effects so you hear the dry guitar from one person and all the reverb on the guitar is actually the other performance so the reverb oh, ends up being slightly different and then in mastering we took that section and actually made it wider we increased the stereo on that section mm -hmm just to make it more different from the rest of things. So you kind of get a break in the middle of the song. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Har Harshita has asked, um, can each of the remotes here today, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I just jumped right into the question. Lois, go ahead. <laughs> I don't know why I read it. Harshita asks, can each of the remotes here today say who you are and what part you had and who else was involved that is on this panel? And I'll, I'll just jump through it real quick. Whoa, whoa I, I lost my, um, hold on, I, was, I was watching the, I realized I was watching the, the, the um, <laughs> I was watching the program there for a second. Um, yeah, um, I'll just go through from who I see here. So Todd, obviously violin, right? Yeah. And is, you said it was an electric violin? You know, this is, it, it, this is kind of a weird thing because um, I, I was going to put a bunch of effects on it, which is the only thing that would classify it as electric violin. What you right. heard was me going through a direct box. It sounds a little compressed. I would have just it was to have soon, just have soon done it as an acoustic part. But mm -hmm. if we modify this at all, I'd love to throw a bunch of effects on it and put all the different parts in Atlas around you so you could really hear the violin in all its, in all its glory. But that's just as pretty much a straight violin. Right. Uh, so the, the violins... Oh, the string quartet violins are pretty straight violins. And then the electric violin part uh, does run through some uh, distortion and reverb effects. Yeah, that's great. That we did to Todd after afterwards without his permission. <laughs> Go ahead, Leland. Background vocal four. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Go ahead, Victor. Uh, yeah, Victor Cahill, and I played soprano saxophone on this one, uh, both written parts that Jeff wrote up for me, as well as the improvisation at the end. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, so I sang some vocal parts and uh, did some percussion and then all the mix prep and producing. Go ahead, Megan. Oh, Megan. Sorry. Go ahead, oh, yeah. Megan. 
Hi, I'm Megan. I'm Jeff's daughter, and I sang most of the female vocal parts. So the, the second verse and many of the doo-doos. That's great. Fantastic work. Uh, Dale? I'm Dale Nabetta. I play guitar parts, and one of the guitar parts was kind of a vibrato-type part, and I used a Leslie simulator. Leslie's a spinning speaker. Nice. Uh, Andy? Uh, just a whole lot of guitar parts, uh, both clean and overdriven, uh, depending on the part of the song. Yeah. Uh, Greg? Okay, hi. Uh, I did uh, bass on a uh, fairly recent uh, Gibson SG, uh, short scale. And um, then I sang, uh, I guess it was uh, B BV5. Dum, dum, da dum, dum, da dum. Yeah, you know. <laughs> Oh, go ahead, um, uh, Brian. Uh, some keyboards, and that was, I used mostly native instruments, absinthe for that, because it had the multiple channels. That's great. Uh, Mike? Uh, Pacific X7 drum kit with Zildjian cymbals and backing vocals. Nice. And JJ? Uh, some boom booms, I, uh, some of the harmony parts, and then I did all the cowbell. That was me. All the cowbell. You did the cowbell? <laughs> yep, that was me. Who knew? Who knew? What did this song need? More cowbell. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was thinking about it. Cowbell. Like, there, so there is a. It, there was a request to um, play it one more time. Is, is it easy for us to queue up and play it one more time now that we've talked about it? But with more cowbell. <laughs> sure, exactly. <laughs> right now. Yes. So while on. we're waiting, um, so we also had David Warner, uh, a cellist mm -hmm. that Leland brought in, uh -huh. uh, Vienna Tran sang uh, vocals and played viola. Uh -huh. um, Jeffrey Powers sang vocals and did some percussion. That's great. Ray Maxwell did bass vocals along with Greg and uh, Tom Charlesworth and uh, John Wallace played keyboards. Nice. Very good. And yeah, that's awesome. I mean, just an incredible village of folks that come together to build these songs. I mean, I, and I think that if you are a musician, it's such a great opportunity to, um, you know, to, uh, you know, be part of something bigger, you know, and be part of something. And I think that even though these take a very long time, I think that's part of the, it's part of building that kind of family that I know that has been building. Like I see the conversations in the background of the further remotes and it's just, it's just a really amazing, it's an amazing thing that, that has, has just, emerged out of it. I think it's one of the most amazing things that's emerged out of office hours. And so if just, you're interested, go to Discord, the remotes band, and let us know who you are, what yeah. you know, what you bring to the table. We'll connect you up. We'll give you the links. I have a couple of short videos to introduce things and naming conventions and all that kind of stuff. And we'll get you in there. Don't be afraid. We're a bunch of really good people that like to have a lot of fun. Uh although we all have jobs, thank goodness, or most of us. And and that keeps us busy. And now that we're bringing daughters in, you know, I've got a bass player. You know, that's all I'm saying. Greg, I don't want you to feel threatened or anything, but I've got a... No, it's, it's, not a it's not a problem. Bring that's it not on. A problem. <laughs> Bring it on. I got to... She's, she's, she's in like three bands right now. So we'll we'll, uh, uh, we'll we'll see if we can't get drag her into the into one of these. And we'll get her shows. mixing. We'll get her mixing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. All right. Are we ready to play this again? Let's do it. I can feel no sense of measure 
No illusions as we take refuge in young man's pleasure, breaking down the dreams we make. Real. Up, down, 
epic. That's so good. I hear you hear more every time you get like I was listening listen to I was on this last time I the second time I listened to it I just hear Victor just rocking away on that on that sax like I was just like oh my gosh there's so many great little bits and pieces of it um and and by the way for some reason Todd it's the it's the it, that 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 kind of uh, crescendo with the violin reminds me of uh, Devil Went Down to Georgia <laughs> like, it's just like that you know like it just it's really good how could it not right I know. Yeah. I love that song. Anyway, so, um, yeah, fantastic. Incredible work, guys. So um, I can't wait. When's the next one? Next week? Next week we got another one. We got another uh, out, another song release. You never know when the remotes can strike. You never know. <laughs> exactly. Any more years before you have enough to do an album, you know, yeah, for the album great. tracks. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. We've got an um, EP coming soon. Oh, that's great. This is, this is song number four. That's awesome. That's and awesome. and if you're a, if you're a music theory nerd, the end of the melody of I leave it is a D to a G, and the prelude section that begins the song is in the key of D, and the rest of the song is in the key of G. Oh, so it's like leave it is musically the same as the harmonic structure of the song. <laughs> That's cool. That's what you find out when you when you live with a song for 19 months. Yeah, exactly. Now, have you already recorded number five? Or are you in post? Or are you still working on getting ready to record number five? We have a couple of songs that are in hiatus right now. Uh, one of us um, is becoming a doctor. <laughs> so uh, she's too busy to, to produce her song right now. And, and the other the other one has also been quite sad. So we have a couple that are in hiatus. We have one that's in the middle of production right now. And uh, more to come, for sure. Awesome. Incredible work. Just incredible work. I, I can't wait. I just, I, I'm just amazed. I'm always amazed when, when, the, when you guys bring one up, I was uh, so excited to hear this one. So anyway, so I can't wait to see it and see it good in Atmos as well. I'm looking forward to hearing it. We'll uh, get there. Surround. And thank you for suggesting this difficult, but really fun song for us. To, I think it'll be really fun. Do. I think, yeah. I think that when we get it into Atmos, you're going to hear it. There's so many little parts and things and 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 tracks that it will just be really really fun so um so i can't wait to hear it well let jeff and and or pete know what we can do to help facilitate that uh, you know upstream from you because i know you have I'm, some experts i'm gonna talk to somebody after now that we have this going so so we'll see again it probably would take not very long for him to do that so so anyway we'll see what we can do there um anyway thank thank you to the uh producers who uh, did such, you know, a great job of keeping the conversation moving forward. Can't do this without you. We also can't do it without uh, the incredible panelists. I love big panels on these days, especially when we get into these, the Thanksgiving, the Christmas, the winter. We have these big panels of all these experts. And remember that on Wednesday, we see not all of these audio experts, but more of these audio experts. And so it's a great time if you've got audio questions to come in on the first hour as well to ask those because we've got a higher preponderance of folks that can answer those questions. So, so come in on Wednesdays for the audio um, specialists. And, um, and then of course, thanks to the incredible team on the back end that through the holidays, through the Sundays and through all the days are making this all happen um, in the back end. It's just, just, it's, it's an amazing thing. So thank you so much for your contribution. And now let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. We're still gonna be here on Thanksgiving, in case you're wondering. I think we're going to have to go. Watch. Walk like an Egyptian. Um, 
Street that I can eat. Too. 